welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast with your host and CEO of Align Ventures, Arnold Olshaneski. Join us as we speak with real estate pros about their experiences and learn the fundamentals of passive real estate investing. Together, we will unlock the secrets of achieving financial freedom by discussing proven strategies and building passive income through investing in real estate. Here's your host, Arnold Olshaneski. Welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast. As always, I'm your host, Arnold Olshansky, and joining me today is Jim Pfeiffer. Jim is the founder of Left Field Investors, a community helping people reach financial freedom through passive real estate investing. Jim has invested into over 95 passive syndications and has a wealth of experience on how to make these investments profitable. In today's episode, we will discuss Jim's journey from being an active investor to fully passive and some of the key differences in those approaches. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, pleased to be here. Um, We're excited to have you on. And just to jump right into it, I know you have a passion for educating people and you started Left Field Investors back in 2020. Can you tell me a little more about, you know, the motivation behind that and how that community has evolved over time? It was purely selfish. I was an active investor for a while and I couldn't find you know, people to talk to and, and learn from and, and network with. So, you know, I was on bigger pockets and they said, hey, if you can't find a meetup, it's your fault, make your own. So I made my own and we were getting 60 people a month to come meet and talk about active real estate investing. In fact, that group is still going. I went well, a couple of weeks ago for the first time in years. I'm so, so pleased it's still going. But when I made my switch to, from active from, to passive, I thought, I want the same thing. I had really enjoyed being able to meet people. And I did business with a ton of these people in this active group. So I wanted the same thing. So I started reaching out and talking to people. And I got 12 people who live in Columbus. And we were going to meet in person because that's what you did pre-pandemic, right? Our first meeting was going to be March 2020, March 18th, in fact. And that was about two days before the, uh, the state shut down for the pandemic. So we'd never met in person. And we had to go online. We went on Zoom and it did wonders for the group because everyone was sitting home with nothing to do. So I was able to get some really top quality speakers like Brian Burke from Praxis Capital is one of our first speakers. You know, he came to a group of 15 people because there was nothing else to do. And so it really accelerated the growth of left field. We weren't called left field then. In fact, I spent the first year trying to restrict membership because I thought this is going to be a mastermind and I was going to learn from all these people and I was going to teach people as well. And so it just kind of grew that we found that there's such a need. People are so thirsty for knowledge about how to get into alternative investments, how to do it passively, that we just finally decided, hey, we're going to let anyone who's interested to join. And now, you know, we've grown from that 12-person group to now we're close to 1,800 members in the community. Wow, 1,800 members. And I just love that story on, on how COVID really boosted the acceleration of that community. Talk about making lemonade out of lemons. That's a pretty good example right there. When you were making that decision to go from being an active investor to being passive, what was your reasoning? What was your logic to say, you know what? I want to do it this way. I feel it suits me better. Well, a couple of things. One, I, you know, as a financial advisor at the time I was doing all this and I didn't like the responsibility of handling other people's money. I loved being able to educate, teach people and and show them a better way. I got. I was frustrated that so many people would fight against it, um, and they think you got to go the conventional route. And so, when I found syndications, I first thought, "Hey, I want to be a syndicator." And I went to a real estate guys meetup, 
and found out in the first five minutes that was not for me. So part of it is because I didn't want to manage other people's money. The other part was what I realized was I was a poor asset manager. None of my properties cash flowed like they were supposed to, or very few did, a couple of did, but most of them didn't cash flow. Most of them weren't performing. Most of it was a battle with the property manager constantly. And I realized I am not a good asset manager. So, but I can evaluate stuff. I'm, I'm good at the underwriting part maybe, but I'm not good at, you know, actually managing it. And I made money on all those properties, but it's because I, I just had luck in the timing because in the last 10 years, any idiot could make money in real estate. Look at me, I did, right? So what I recognized was that I want to hire someone who's a professional. All they do is manage assets. Well, what makes me think I can do it better than they can? Not only that, you know, if you're going to be active, you have to have an advantage over everybody else to be successful. I didn't have that. I can't swing a hammer, right? So I can't do my own work. I, I don't have any market expertise above anybody else. So I, I'm not going to be as effective finding quality property. So people say, well, you can make more money as an active investor. Yes, absolutely. If you have some kind of advantage, if you don't have a specific market advantage or a specific, you know, you can save costs by doing the work yourself kind of advantage, then, you know, I, what I've found is my results are better in passive investing because I'm hiring quality asset managers to do everything for me and they're better at it than I am. So that's kind of how I evolved into, into becoming a passive investor because I realized I can do this much better, get better results. And, you know, I don't have to w worry about tenants, toilets, and termites, which nobody wants to deal with that, right? I don't, I don't deal with that at all. It's amazing to do that level of self-reflection and to be honest with yourself, you know, because I always say this, right? There's nothing worse. Well, there's probably a couple of things, but it's not great to run in the wrong direction. The only thing worse than that is to run in that direction fast. And, you know, <laughs> to do that reflection and kind of ask yourself what you want to do, what you don't want to do, what you're good at, what you're not good at. I could relate to your decision-making process. I kind of went through a similar one myself. I went the other route and, you know, I had my reasons for foregoing the active route, but I'm very well aware of the reasons to go the passive route. You know, and I want to follow with, what are some of the questions that somebody should ask themselves when they're making that decision? If there's somebody listening right now and they're wondering, hey, should I be active or should I be passive? What are some of the questions you feel they should be asking themselves? That's a great question. Right? I feel like I read a lot on bigger pockets of people like, hey, I have 200 grand. What should I do? And everyone jumps in and says, you know, do a burr, do this, do that. And my answer is always, well, first, the first thing you need to do is ask yourself, do you want to be active or passive? And before you ask yourself that, please understand what that means. Because when I was an active investor, I thought I was passive because I hired a property manager. I wasn't doing the work, right? But it was very active because I was managing the property manager. I was doing, I was getting down into the business, right? So what I would say is it depends on your, what you want to do. Do you want a second, like if you're employed, W-2 worker, do you want a second job? Because active investing is a second job. You are going to have to take your time to go find properties. Then you're going to have to evaluate them, buy them, rehab them, keep them up. Even if you're paying other people to do that, they're not going to take care of the property like you are because you're the owner. When they say active, it is active. No matter how much, you, even a turnkey, single family turnkey, I've done a bunch of them, not passive. Now, maybe somebody's smarter than me and can make them passive. I can't figure out how to do that. So the first question I would ask is, you know, do you want to be active or passive? And then figure out, okay, well, what 
how much time do I want? I still spend a lot of time, all my time on passive investing. So it's not like you're going to have free time. But if you have a job and you're doing something else and you're not going to be an expert, then go rely on other experts, right? I mean, the same thing. Do you do your own taxes? Do you write your own legal documents? I mean, I used to do that because I was trying to save money. And then I thought, what am I doing? And I'm going to lose a lot more money by writing a crappy uh, legal document or messing up on my taxes and having to pay penalties. So I hired professionals to do that. Why is my real estate investing any different? Now, I do have some advantages in, in that I, you know, I really spend time and I, and I have a network. And so I, I can do passive investing maybe better than, than some other people. But I think you just got to figure out what time do you want to spend and how do you want to spend it, right? I'm a passive investor. I never have to leave this room that I'm in right now to do my passive investments. Now I can and I should. I should go visit properties and operators and things, but I don't have to. If you're an active real estate person, you're going to want to go see those properties at least the first time. Now I bought properties that I didn't see, but I never bought a property that I didn't go visit the person who's selling it to me at least for the first property, right? These turnkeys. It's a time difference in how you want to spend your time and how deep you want to dive into it. For example, when I'm looking at an active deal, I need to know everything. I need to dig deep. I need to do full underwriting, all of it. When I'm evaluating a passive deal, I'm not going to re-underwrite it. That's for the property, the asset manager to do, right? I'm going to vet them and make sure they know what they're doing. And then I'm going to spot check the underwriting when they send me the deal. So that's kind of some of the difference. Right. Yeah, you're definitely underwriting the people just as much as you're underwriting the property. And one of the things that I run into a lot is a lot of people go the active route, right? And then they're, you know, a year, two, couple of years into their journey. And they realize, wow, this is taking so much more time than I thought it was going to. And then they start pivoting later. I wonder, I'm curious, what's your opinion? Why do you feel so many people have that misconception that, you know, it's just going to be easy as pie and, and then they realize, hey, it's no matter what, whether you have a full-time PM company or not, it's just full-time, hands-on, all-the-time type of job. Why do you feel that misconception is so common in the industry? I think it's podcasts, communities. They're all, I mean, no one gets on a podcast and says, hey, here's all the ways I messed up. Here's why this is so hard, right? They get on the podcast and the people that are struggling aren't invited on the podcast anyways, right? You're pulling out the rock stars, especially like bigger pockets. I love bigger pockets. I'm not throwing any shade there, but you get on their podcast. That means you've, you've been successful. So you've already figured it out. So it's easy for you. And you can say, Hey, here's the five things you need to do. It's easy. See, I did it. But then you get into it and you realize, Oh, I'm not that person. There's some, you know, there's differences in what I do than what they do. And so I can't, maybe I can't do it like they do. So I think that's it. And, and people want to be in real estate because they recognize the difference it can make in their life. And most people don't realize that there's a way to do it. These passive syndications that doesn't require all the expertise work. I mean, it does take work. It is hard, but not the same type, right? It, it's a different, a different type of work. And one thing I should mention on the, for the last question you asked is one of the big differences is lack of control in syndications, right? Which can be a blessing or a curse. In 2020, when everything cratered and, you know, if I wanted to panic and sell all my real estate, I could have done that with my active stuff. I couldn't do it with my passive stuff. So in one sense, that protects me. But another, if I need cash, I can't get it. It's completely illiquid. 
or mostly a liquid. So just another thing to think about. That's such a great point. You know, I never thought of that one. And I've thought about passive and active for hundreds of hours. (laughs) (laughs) But that's such a good point that somebody should be asking themselves, how good of an investor am I? How good is my emotional discipline if things start dropping? Am I going to panic? Am I going to sell? Because, you know, that's usually when people lose money, right? If they're over leveraged and they panic. And so asking those questions is so powerful. I always like to also play devil's advocate, right? So there's obviously reasons why somebody should be passive. And let's look on the other side of the spectrum. What would be some of the reasons why somebody should be active instead of passive? Uh, You mentioned one of them, right? Which is, you know, people could have more control over the property when they sell, when they exit, when they get money out of it and so on. What would be another couple of good reasons why somebody should go the other route? Well, one, and this this might be minor, it depends on you, might be major. If you absolutely do not want to extend your taxes past April 15th, do not be a passive investor because you do not, it's all control, right? You don't have control when the K-1s come. So there's a K-1 I'm not going to get until September. So I haven't filed my taxes yet. So if that makes you uncomfortable, you know, I got an email from someone in our community who said, hey, what do we do? We, we haven't gotten our K-1s yet. We're, we can't file our taxes. You just sit there and wait, right? You don't have any options. I mean, you could file and then file an amended return or whatever, but you know that's going to cost money and that's pain in the butt. So that's one thing. I really think the main, you, you could be both, right? There's nothing wrong with being active and passive, but I think you, you really, the difference is control mostly and the time horizon also. But all these things come back to control, right? These are illiquid, out of your control, and they're long-term, right? You're going to be in it until the operator decides you're going to get out of it. So it all comes down to control, I think. If you can't relinquish control and you're not the kind of person who could put, you know, everything in somebody else's hands, then this is definitely not not for you, right? If you're a total do-it-yourself person, this isn't going to work. Absolutely. And everybody's different in that sense, right? Some people can let go of that rope I call it the rope of delegation. And some people really need to have that level of autonomy over a process. And, you know, everybody's different. So asking, asking that question is, is also very powerful. I think another great point you said is if you're investing passively in these syndications, be prepared to file an extension on your taxes every single year because you can't control when those K-1s are going to be ready, uh, especially if you're in multiple syndications, you could have... Two of the syndications delivered on time, but if one doesn't, then you still have to wait till September 15th, unless, like you said, you do an amended return, which is a whole big process. Another point is that, you know, one of the greatest benefits to real estate investing is is obviously the tax advantages, right? How are the tax benefits in a syndication different when you're active versus passive? They aren't really different. It's how you view them. Right. And this is another thing that it drives me crazy, you know, and it's changing a little bit with the with the new tax, the tax laws that are changing. But everyone thinks you got to do a 1031 if you're an active investor and you want to, you know, save on taxes. And what we do it, you know, when you're a passive investor, we look at we call it a lazy 1031. And it's not a 1031, but it's comparable. And basically, you know, when you buy a property, and we'll just talk from passive for a second. I mean, the taxes are a huge, huge benefit here. You buy into a syndication, you invest $100,000, let's say. So in year one, you're going to get a paper loss, the depreciation 
between, I don't know, twenty dollars and $100,000 of paper loss, depending on the asset class and, and how the cost seg's done and all, and all of that. So let's say you get 8% return in cash flow on that deal, right? So now, and let's say you go halfway to 50%. So you have a $50,000 loss in year one because of the bonus depreciation, cost segregation, all that. And then you're making $8,000 a year on that investment. Well, you know, the first four, I do my math, five years of that investment, six years, I guess, you're not going to pay any tax, right? Because the loss that you have is going to offset all of that cash flow. And so if you do it right and you bank enough losses, you won't ever pay tax. And you can do that as an active investor. So what I did when I was an active investor, I sold all of my assets in the same year. I went to my accountant. I said, I'm going to have a huge tax hit. What can I do? And he said two things. The first thing he said is, you know, Jim, sometimes when you make a lot of money, you got to pay tax. I didn't like that answer. The second answer he said is, well, you can do this lazy 1031. So basically, I took the capital that I got from selling those properties, invested it into syndications, build up enough passive loss that I didn't pay any capital gains on the properties I sold. Right? Most people would have thought, hey, I need to do a lazy or an actual 1031 and take those properties. And that means you have to upgrade to a bigger property, a bigger loan. You have to stay an active investor. And you have all these rigid requirements, 60 days, 45 days. I don't even know what they are because I never do it because you can just do a lazy 1031 and it's easy. It's not precise. You're not going to know if you had enough loss to cover all your gains until April of the following year. So you kind of got to roll the dice and maybe overdo it a little bit. But the point is you can do it without paying taxes. And you could probably do that with active investing as well because you get the same depreciation. But if you're doing single family assets, it's harder to do a cost seg. You can do it, but it's harder. So there's just, a, there's some differences. But with passive investing, the lazy 1031 is, is just easy and there's no reason not to do it. Right. So just to really zoom in on the difference here between uh, standard 1031 and a lazy 1031. So obviously the standard 1031 is when you exit and you have all these taxes that you would need to pay capital gains on, you need to find a bigger property to reinvest that money into in order to not be subject to those capital gains. Now, would a yes. lazy 1031 exchange I want to make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. You can exit, let's say, an active portfolio and you have capital gains. And instead of buying a bigger property, you can take that money and put it into various different syndications instead of going and, and becoming active again. Is that the case? Yeah. So again, I should caveat this. I'm not a tax professional or an expert of any kind. Um, I, ju I just I did it. Right. So I know it works. But what you need to do is you need to invest in passive investments that you know are going to have a pretty big tax loss, right? Because what you're doing is if you take 100 grand and you invest it and you get that $50,000 of loss, now that $50,000 of loss can offset the gain that you had by selling your other property, right? As long as the loss occurs before the gain or in the same year of the gain. And that's the easy part of this is you don't have those 45 or 60 day requirements but you need to have the loss happen in the same tax year or the tax year prior to be able to apply them to the gains that you made in that year. Yeah, I know one of the big differences in, in the tax benefits between being active and passive is when you're an active investor, you can take those losses and you could apply it to your active income. So if you have a W-2 job or any income that's not labeled passive, you could take 
those losses and apply it to that. But I believe from my understanding of the tax code that if you are a passive investor and you have a W-2 job, you cannot take those losses that you get on paper and apply it to your, say, W-2 income that you have or your business income or any other income that's considered active. That's mostly right. Um, I think to actually be able to take your active losses and apply them to your W-2 income, you have to be what's called a real estate professional. And to get that status, you have to work 750 hours in active real estate. And so I was talking to a CPA today. That's why I remember these numbers. But he said that it's almost impossible to do if you have your, a W-2. If you're a, a real estate, if you're full-time real estate professional, meaning you, that's the only job you have, then it's, it's easy to get that status. The only other way is if you're a full-time W-2 person and your spouse is a real estate professional, then you can offset your income. I would just recommend, you know, talk to your CPA, but be very careful about, you know, if you're not a full-time real estate professional, then you cannot, you can't have the losses offset your W-2. I know another caveat of that is not only is there 750 hours as the minimum, but also it has to be more than 50% of what you work on. So if you have another a business or job where you're actively participating in it and you're working 751 hours there, that's not going to fly. Uh, so all things to consider and keep in mind. But I think a great point that you make is even if you go the passive route, you can still apply that towards your passive gains. So if you're going to make money on that syndication, you can apply what you invested that depreciation schedule into you know, the distributions that you're getting, maybe they're not in year one, but in year two, three, four, and five, and so on. Yeah. And just to be clear, and again, I only know this because I had the conversation with the CPA today, and I remember some of what he, he was talking about, is if you're a passive investor, you cannot become a real estate professional. You cannot use your passive losses to offset your income. As you said, you have to do that only on the active stuff. Now, if you're an active real estate investor who has a few passive investments, and you qualify for real estate professional because you're active, then your passive losses can also go against your income. But it's because you have that REP status, real estate professional status through being an active real estate investor. So just a little caveat there. Well, that's the same information that I have. So, yeah. uh, but again, we're not tax, uh, we're not CPAs and we're not attorneys. So anybody listening, definitely double check with your counsel. Exactly. Now you've invested in over 95 different syndications, right? You got a lot of experience. In, in your opinion, what are some of the critical aspects that you need to underwrite on a deal level? And also maybe some of the things that you're gonna underwrite on the sponsor level before you say yay or nay? To me, it's all about the sponsor. I would say 80% of my due diligence and, and everything is, is about the operator because they're the asset manager who's gonna take care of that deal. So I want to make sure they know what they're doing, they have a plan, and they've got it figured out. So I spend a lot of time vetting the operator. And then once they qualify, and I'm like, okay, I think I'm good to go with them. If they send me a deal, then it's really just a cursory check. I already know they're going to send me quality stuff because I've already vetted the operator. So now when the deal comes, at Leftfield Investors, we have a tool we call the Deal Analyzer, where you can throw in the, um, the financials and some of the other uh, metrics that they give you in the pitch deck. And it'll kind of spin it up and tell you, you know, hey, look at this. It'll, it'll give you some areas of concentration where you can ask questions. 
I always want to ask questions about the deal, even if I don't have them. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I want to make sure that the sponsor is going to communicate with me in a timely fashion, in a quality manner. Because if they're not going to respond to me before I've invested and before I've sent them 50 grand, there's no chance they're going to respond to me after I've given them my money, right? And as we said, these are illiquid investments that are completely out of your control, right? So once I wire that money, I have nothing. I can't do anything. I just have to hope they send reports and hope they send cash flow. So I want to check that ahead of time. So what I do is I anything that pops up on our deal analyzer is a question, I send that in an email to the operator and then I wait and I see, are they <laughs> going to respond in a, you know, in the norm, like 24 hours or, right. or whatever. And if they don't, then I'm moving on. There's plenty of operators out there. If they do, great. And they answer my questions, as long as they're quality answers, then even if I don't have another question, I'll send them another email because I'm high maintenance. I want to know that they're going to be able to handle me as a customer. So I want to check them again. So I do a lot on the operator and then I do less on the deal. But when I'm looking at the deal, you know, I'm looking at the market and just a few of the metrics. And it depends on the asset class, you know, how deep you want to dig into it. Uh, There's certain metrics for different asset classes that I focus on. But really, if you vetted the operator, then the deal is just secondary. That doesn't mean you don't vet the deal, but it's not as important to me as, as the operator. I love that strategy. I actually use the strategy that you were just mentioning in a different way. Whenever I'm looking for any new service provider, whether it doesn't matter for anything business related, and I'm always emailing them and I'll never follow up. I'm always waiting to see how long will it take for this to be responded to. And then this, obviously the second part is what was the quality of the answer? So really like that as a strategy for vetting sponsors. If I go the passive route ever, I will definitely be doing that. <laughs> what are some other things that, you know, maybe you have some other tricks of the trade that you got to, to vet sponsors or just your process, right? Besides that, what, yeah. are, what are maybe top two or three things that you're looking at to determine whether or not you want to do business with this person? The first thing is, I think that to step back and I'll tell you how I used to do it and then I'll tell you how I do it now because it's kind of a journey, right? When I first uh, decided I wanted to be a passive investor, I went to the real estate guys uh, seminar that I mentioned and I had a 401k rollover that I converted to a self-directed IRA. It was burning a hole in my pocket and I went there and everybody I met, I'm like, hey, can I invest with you? Here's money, here's money, here's money. It was a really bad way of finding operators, right? Because I assumed that if you're at this seminar, you must be really great at what you do which was the case for some and not for others. So some of those deals were bad. Some were okay. One was good, right? So that's not a very good ratio. So then I decided that's that's not the right way to do it. So then I started listening to podcasts, reading books. And I'd listen to a podcast and I'd hear an operator. I'd call him up. I'd talk to him for 30 minutes. They'd send me a deal. I'd maybe talk to him for another 15 minutes about the deal. And then I'd have to make the decision, do I send him a hundred grand or not? I didn't know if they were just a really great marketer and podcaster or they really great asset manager. No idea, right? It was much better than the first thing, just going and throwing money at people, but it still wasn't, it wasn't ideal. And then once we started this community, now we talk about community as a verb. So we community the operator. And what that means is now I won't invest with a new operator unless they're referred to me by somebody in my community who I know, like, and trust who has already invested with that operator. It doesn't mean that they've gone full cycle. It just means they've had a year, say, with that sponsor. So they know, yeah, if you send your wire, which is terrifying, right? To send a wire. Anyway, if you send it there, they're going to get it. They're going to invest it. 
and they're going to send you reports and maybe some distributions. And so I still do all the same analysis, you know, like the experience of the sponsor, some of those other things that you look at, but I'm starting from a hundred steps forward, trust transfers, right? So if someone I trust, trust them. Well, now, you know, that, that transfer. So that's really the process for me is to kind of, they have to go through that funnel that someone else has dealt with them and done business with them. And then I'll consider them. And then, yeah, I'm looking at things like, you know, how many deals have you done? How many have gone full cycle? What's your experience? You know, and then some of the operating stuff, do you, uh, you know, hire property managers, that in-house, just a lot of those questions just to kind of get to know them a little bit. And at the same time, I don't want to exclude someone just because they don't have experience, but especially in difficult times, uncertain times like we're in now, you know, I probably lean a little bit harder on the how long you've been doing this thing. That's really, really good insight. And, and you know, not everybody was going to have that luxury right away where they're maybe part of that community where they can, like you said, trust transfers, right? Some people might be going to conferences and looking for that deal flow and, you know, and then have to do those, let's say even, even podcasts, right? Those 30 minute calls. And for the people that still have to do that, right? That maybe aren't part of a community. Is there anything that they should be looking for or asking in that 30 minute call that you might have with a sponsor? Well, first I would say there's no excuse for not being part of a community. I'm completely biased. I think left field investors is great. But the thing I always tell people is, you need to join a community and have a network because if you walk out your front door and you go to talk to your neighbors or you go to a family, you know, 4th of July picnic and you're talking to your family and you say, hey, let, let's talk about finances, right? What are they going to talk about? Their 401k, the interest rate they got on their mortgage, their 529 plan for their kid's college. And you're going to say, oh yeah, but what about these real estate syndications? And all of a sudden you're going to be sitting there, you know, eating a piece of watermelon by yourself because everyone's going to walk away. Who's that crazy guy with the syndications? So, there is no place to get this knowledge other than, you know, joining a community, building a network. If you don't like any of the communities out there, build your own, right? But it is so critical because, as I said before, long-term, illiquid, out of your control, you cannot make a mistake on the sponsor. And so if you're going to go and say, hey, I'm going to do this on my own, that's fine. I can give you a list of questions to ask the sponsor. You'll still lose money on some deals because you picked a bad sponsor, right? That's just going to happen. It'll still happen doing it the way I do, where you get referred from people you trust. There's still going to be deals that go south, but at least hopefully there are deals that go south with an operator that you can trust, right? Not everyone's going to have perfect deals. I think it's critical to find an operator through a method, you know, to find a community that'll help you out. And again, I know I didn't answer your question. I kind of skirted around it, but that's truly how I feel. You, you got to have other people helping you out. This is not a, you know, lone cowboy type of thing. This is everybody on the ranch pulling together. Speaking of, uh, for example, left field investors, is that a community of all passive investors or is it a mix of passive and active investors? How is that community structured? It's mostly passive. I mean, we all talk about passive. That's what we do in the community. There's people that are, um, that have active sides to them. There's operators, you know, asset managers who have their own syndications, but, you know, maybe they want to branch out into a different asset class. So they're a limited partner on other deals. They'll join the community. Um, we do have people who have, you know, their own single families that they own or small multis or something like that. We also have some who have half their assets in the stock market and another thing. So we focus on passive investing in real estate syndications. That's the focus of the group, but we have all kinds of people in the group that do all kinds of different investing. Okay. And, and what's the process to join? 
it's simple. There's the free part. You just give us your email and and go to the website, leftfieldinvestors.com. And uh, you click the community button and you can just join and you get, I think, like half the website maybe for free. And you can kind of test it out and see if see if you like it. And then the the cost for the infield, which is our membership community, is $199 a year. So it's not a huge investment, but that gets you access to our tools, the forum. And that's where the real community happens. We have deal flow. We have um, lunch and learns and educational stuff. And some of that you can get for free and some of it is uh, comes with the paid membership. And you know, I'm not here just to say, hey, you got to join left field investors. What I'm meaning with this whole conversation is, hey, you need to join a community. There's others that are different. And, and my recommendation is find one that fits you know, the culture of that community fits your personality, right? If you come to our meetup and you wear a tie, you can walk in with the tie. You're not walking out with it. There's other meetups that you got to wear a tie to get into it, right? So that's part of the culture is is just, you know, we're a little bit more relaxed. We still know what we're doing, but there's some that are a little bit more uptight and you just got to find what fits you. I would assume with this size of a community and your experience, you guys probably see a lot of deals pitched to the group. What are you seeing in the market today? What kind of returns? How has it changed from a year or two ago? It's changed a lot, right? I think operators are struggling to get people to commit to their deals. And they're also, the investors are so used to doubling their money in three years that they're really not putting as much money into the market because, you know, the returns are lower. We're used to have prefs of 7 or 8%. Now maybe they're 6%. You used to have IRRs of 18% and now they're 15 or 14%. So, there's still opportunity out there, but you need to really lean on the operator more than ever now, I think. And you also, like, I'm paying closer attention to debt, right? Because that's what the real problems are, the debt that the interest rates went up so fast that you really just need to, I think you just need to be more patient and analyze deals more carefully and analyze sponsors more carefully. Because three years ago, you could throw money at almost any syndicator on almost any deal and there'd be quick success, right? There were some failures, but not as many. Now, it's completely different. And so, you know, you just have to be a little bit more cautious, a little bit more patient. You know, just to recap, so much insight came out of this from what I got, and I'm going to do my best to really capture all of this. But some of the big differences between passive and active investing is, well, let's say, first off, number one, you got to ask yourself the right questions. You got to ask yourself, how much time do I have what am I good at? What am I not good at? Am I willing to give somebody control? Do I need control? Do I have passive income or active income that I need to offset by taxes? And just even by asking those set of questions, somebody can really sit down and do some self-reflection and decide what avenue is better for them. I would also add that you don't really need to decide I'm only doing one or the other. You can do both. We have plenty in our community who do a little bit of both. And you'll see which one you end up gravitating toward. Like a lot of people in our community start out active because they don't know there's this other option. And then they slowly transition. And then all of a sudden, they're completely passive. And it's also, where are you in your journey, right? I'm in my mid-50s. I don't want to be you know, doing this forever, uh, the active stuff. I didn't want to. I wanted to do something a little bit less, you know, day to day and in the weeds. But if you're in your 20s or 30s, you know, let's face it, to be a passive investor, you need capital. If you haven't been in your career, your financial journey enough to have enough capital, 
then you need to either be active to start or find a hack, which, you know, we do, we have, um, we use a company called TribeVest. It's a whole nother story, but it can allow you to get into deals for as little as $10,000 that normally have a minimum of 50, 100 or 500,000. So you can do it if you're early on in your journey. It's just, you can do both is what I'm trying to say and make the decision along the way. I love the point you made because it, it takes me back to when I was making my decision. When I was saying, should I go passive or active? I was at a point in my career where I could have went passive and never done an active deal and would have been just fine from now until forever. But, you know, I said, you know, I'm turning, I'm 36. Well, back then I was 34 and I still got so much drive and energy and God, what am I going to do if I'm not working every day? There's only so much time I could focus on hobbies and going to the gym or, you know, spending time with friends and family because other people got work. So when I, <laughs> when I did that self-reflection, I said, even though I could be passive and it wouldn't really change my life materially, I realized I don't want it because I love the sport of business. And that's another question that people should ask because business is a mental sport. If you're a competitive person and you enjoy, you know, working every day, building something, being an operator, building workflows, processes, hiring the right people, putting the right people in the right seats, you should take that into consideration. And if you don't like it, you should take that into consideration. So I love that comment you made. It, it really brought me back to that point in my life. And that makes complete sense, right? You got to follow your passions. And if you're really passionate about active real estate, go for it, man. You can make a ton of money because if you're super passionate about it, you're probably really good at it. And you probably do have some of those advantages we talked about earlier. But if you're not and your passions are elsewhere, well, then use passive investing to make the money to fuel your passions and then go do your passions because now you've given yourself time freedom, right? The whole point of this, at least for me, is financial freedom, right? What does that mean? It means something different to everybody. But what I've finally come to realize is financial freedom to me means freedom of time and place, right? I can go live anywhere. I can go on vacation anywhere and still do my investing. And I can do it when I want to because I'm making money whether I'm working or not because the cash flow just keeps coming in. Now, there's a lot you have to do to get there. It's not like snap a button and all of a sudden there you are, but it's attainable. You know, one of our uh, LFI founders, Chad Ackerman, he decided, I think, five years ago that he wanted to quit his W-2 in five years through passive investing. I think he did it in three and a half. Now, he did it in the really great times, right? The last four years have been really great. So it's probably not going to be as easy to do that going forward in that short amount of time. But in five years, in 10 years, absolutely. You can make your W-2 optional or completely get rid of it just through this uh, passive investing strategy. Great advice. Jump into some of our closing questions. What is your number one rule for success in life and in business? That's a hard one. I think patience. And the other thing is on the broken record is community, right? You don't have to do everything alone. And in fact, you can't do everything alone. You are better together working with others towards a common goal and you'll just be more successful. Now, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to somebody to help them on their investing journey, what would that be? It's join a community. It's get together with other people. It's work with others because that's the road to success. And I mean, I'm probably going to answer the same thing to all of your questions and I apologize, but that's how passionate I am about this. When I first started out, I didn't have a community when I was doing this passive investing thing and I was terrible at it, right? And then I also, when I started out active investing, I was terrible at that. And then I got a community and I realized, 
oh, I'm not going to get any better at that. <laughs> so I eventually left it, right? So having other people around who can support you, help you, and push you forward. Yeah, Jim, I, I want to thank you for your time today. As I told you before we started this, I was super pumped to have you on the show. Uh, just when we did that research and knew a little bit about your journey from going active to doing so many passive deals and just my personal story of how much I struggled with that decision. I was really, really looking forward to this chat and um, it was even better than expected. So again, thank you very much and uh, look forward to connect with you offline. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Winning in Real Estate listener, thank you for joining. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review, share this podcast with somebody you think can benefit from it, and also don't forget to follow and subscribe. If you would like to become a better real estate investor, make sure to download the Passive Investor's Guide to Analyzing a Real Estate Syndication Deal. This comprehensive ebook equips investors with the tools to evaluate deals and avoid common mistakes gain insights, strategies, and practical advice to make better investment decisions. Download your copy today at investav.com forward slash ebook, or you can find the link in our show notes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action.